If you're new with us, uh, I apologize. I'm not the most polished preacher you're going to see in your lifetime. Uh, We don't get to do this very often, but it is an honor to be here. And uh, it is kind of fitting, while Pastor Marks is away, that he would leave me into a text about semi-adult language. By the way, if your kids are in here, there's going to be some topics today that are semi-adult with semi-adult language. So if you wanted them to join City Kids, now would be the time. Um, but anyhow, it's fitting that he left me with the passage about circumcision and just went on to the beach at North Carolina and all that good stuff. And I have to be fair to him. He did offer for me to do a one-off message, something on my own. And I thought about that for a while. And I said, you know, we try to teach through the text here as a whole. And we don't try to skip anything or take away anything. So after thinking about that, I said, I can't break away from the scripture in Romans and what Paul's talking about. And every time I read it, Admittedly, the 12-year-old boy in me chuckles a little bit, and I grimace at the same time because it's kind of a painful thought about circumcision and all the things. So, But we're going to get through this together, and if y'all bear with me, it'll be a, uh, a good Sunday, and we might learn something out of it too. Because what Paul's trying to show us today is far greater and deeper than any physical act of circumcision. Uh, as we typically think about it. Instead, Paul wants us to understand that our physical acts of surrender and obedience come as a result of our faith uh, of the work that God's done in our own heart. Throughout the study of the book of Romans, we've been learning about justification by faith alone. Faith, not works. Anything we can do on our own accord doesn't count up. This is especially good news for a country boy like me because I spend most of my life working to be good and I still mess up on the regular. If you don't believe that, just ask my wife after. She'll let you know. But last week, Marcus walked us through the first illustration of this theme in the person of Abraham. Most of us here learned Abraham way back in Sunday school. Uh, we used to sing, sing this song with me. Father Abraham had many sons, had many sons. So we all know it, right? <laughs> um, Abraham, he, he, we, we know him as the father of faith. We, we're often reminded to celebrate uh, him as a great faith leader for his obedience to God's call. Um, but certainly we don't glorify him or count him above God in any way. After all, he was a pagan moon worshiper from the Ur of Chaldeans. He, he, he came from a land of Gentiles that didn't know anything about worshiping God. And quite often he took things into his own hands. Even after he met God, he took things into his own hands, disobeying the plans of God impatient to wait on the promise of the Father. Does this sound familiar? Sounds familiar to me. If you didn't get to listen to last week's message, though, from Pastor Marcus about the introduction to Abraham, I encourage you to go back and do that as soon as you can because this text primarily focuses on the example of what Abraham, how to illustrate salvation, came well before the act of circumcision. 
So if you can, let's open our Bibles to Romans 4, verses 9 through 13. We're going to pick up where Pastor Marcus left off and uh, get right into it. Chapter 9, or chapter 4, verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Or also for the uncircumcised. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had faith. While he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through law, but through the righteousness of faith. Let's pray before we get in. Father God, um, you've wrecked me this week as I've studied this text. You've opened my eyes to so many things, allowing me to get into the word and travel from the New Testament back to the Old Testament. And Father God, um, I just pray that uh, some of what I was able to learn this week that you passed to these people in the congregation today and everybody who hears this message. Father God, get me out of the way. Um, speak through me and, and not let my sinful nature come through. In your name we pray. Amen. So before we dive in, the text here is important to understand the historical context and significance of circumcision. Circumcision was synonymous back then with uh, being Jewish. It was an outward symbol of God's chosen people. The Hebrew people came to take great pride in the circumcision. It became a badge of spiritual uh, honor and national superiority. This practice fostered an exclusivist, that's a big word, I know. I'm from Mississippi, I shouldn't say words like that, but every now and then... The computer helps me out with a big word. Exclusivist mentality instead of a missionary zeal to reach Gentiles, which was God's original tent, intent for the, his chosen people. The Gentiles came to be regarded by the Jews as the uncircumcision, the term of disrespect implying that non-Jewish people were outside of the uh, circle of God's love. Culturally, circumcision was considered a mark of God's favor uh, that it was taught that if a Jew had practiced idolatry, that he couldn't even go to hell until his circumcision was removed. Like, if you had the circumcision, you couldn't even get into hell. That's what they believed. Interestingly enough, some scholars believe that the act of circumcision was put into place by God as a means of protecting his chosen people. Um, medical history... Uh, has gone back that far and proven that the circumcision um, helped the Jewish uh, culture. It's, sorry, I'm getting caught up in my words here. It helped the Jewish culture uh, prolong their generations 
because there was a historically large uh, amount of cervical cancer back then. And by having this process done, it helped the cleanliness of the, of the man who didn't trans, transfer the disease to the woman. It's fitting that God would use circumcision as a, uh, to create this sign on the procreative organ because it is a reminder of the cleansing we need that we often pass down from generation to generation through, through childbirth. We're going to see today, however, that the circumcision is far from just an outward physical act, but what God's calling us to uh, in Scripture is through circumcision of our heart. We see throughout Scripture, through all the prophets referencing this circumcision of the heart. You can look back in De Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, Jeremiah 4, verse 4, and Galatians 5, 6. Um, all these texts refer to the circumcision of the heart. So, as we dive in, Paul speaks of the blessing of those who are counted righteous before God. He, he counts it as a blessing in a state of spiritual prosperity, implying favorable circumstances. As Paul quotes from King David in Psalm 32, verses 7 and 8, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not count his sin. Essentially, Paul is reemphasizing that those whose sins are forgiven are covered, are considered blessed. And in verse 9, is this blessing only for the circumcised or the only, or the, sorry, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. The structure here is interesting. Um, in the Greek construction of this question, the, it is phrased in a way that expects an affirmative answer. When they say, is this blessing only for the circumcised? It ex when they read that back then and they're in Greek language, they would expect to say yes right there. But that's not the case. The reader, the reader expected that, but it wasn't the case. Remember, circumcision in this context is synonymous with being Jewish. Uh, so Paul again raises the question and challenges the Jews right in this special spot where they can't ignore it. Jew, the special position that they thought they had in the kingdom of God. Paul's question is whether the blessing of justification was granted to Abraham is limited to Abraham's natural descendants in the Jewish race or, or everybody. So he, he proceeds to answer this question in verse 10. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Notice how Paul draws you in, draws them in, and he, he just puts them right into his argument. And he's like a defense attorney, you know, just baiting them up, baiting them up, and bam, here he comes with the sucker punch. He's, <laughs> he refutes it with the truth. We see an essential race relationship between faith and righteousness. Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, was justified before he was circumcised. Before. That's important. So let's take a moment to recall God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. 
We're going to read Genesis 15, 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Abram at that time. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continued childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And, and Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will become my heir. So Pastor Marcus touched on this a little bit last week. Since he didn't have any children of his own, the head servant in his home was set to inherit everything he had. That's the way it worked back then. So then he, and God brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed, and it says, he believed the Lord. He believed the Lord. And he, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Right then, did you catch that? Abraham was childless, a well-aged man who was given a promise from God that his offspring would outnumber the stars. He believed right then. Believed right then. This is the moment of his faith, and this alone is the basis for Abraham's righteousness. This, this alone. Not any act of obedience, not any law, not anything that was established after this point. Abraham believed. Paul, um, that, that verse really gets me because God brings him outside and says, Look at the stars. And count them. And then he says, if you can. And and yes, it's amazing. The next sentence says, Abraham believed. But to me, God says, count them if you can. And, and I understood that, that to God to be saying to Abram, I already know how many there are up there. And I don't have to count them. And I know that you can't physically count them. But that's how many more your heirs will be. So Abram believed. Verse 11 and 12. He, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. We see here that Abraham's justification by faith occurred while he was still uncircumcised, making him the spiritual father of both the Jews and the Gentiles who believe God. Abraham was a Gentile, remember? He was uncircumcised when he became to faith, so he became the the father in the literal sense, meaning the first one to come to faith in God, and then his offspring began the faith. Paul doesn't leave this question open for debate, but answers it clearly that while he was uncircumcised in a physical state, which the Jews equated with Gentile dogs, that was what they referred to him as, this was the state of their physical ancestors. This was their argument that we're the ch children of Abraham. And Paul goes right at it and says, 
Yes, you're the, you're the children of Abraham. You're his offspring. But guess what? This law, this, uncircum, this circumcision thing, this came after Abraham was uh, already in the faith of God. And whether they like it or not, whether they accept it or not, it's an indisputable fact. The chronology in, of this in Genesis proves Paul's case. And to any honest observer who dives into the scripture can find it. Abram's age when he was declared righteousness is not directly stated, but we later see when Hagar, his servant, bore him a son, Ishmael, um, the scripture records his age as 86 years old. Ishmael was 13 years old when both he and Abram, Abraham were circumcised. Abraham was 99 years old at this point. But God declared Abraham righteous before Ishmael had even been conceived, which would have been at least like 14 years before that. So to say it in a different way, Abraham's righteousness was not credited to him because he was circumcised. The fact of the opposite is true. Abraham was circumcised out of an act of obedience in the testimony to the fact that he had already been justified by faith. Paul describes this act of circumcision as a seal of righteousness, a sign, a seal used to describe an engraved object, used to make a mark, a mark that denotes ownership or approval, closure of something. A seal in those days uh, was often made by some sort of a ring pressed into hot wax, you know, closing a document, making it valid or authentic. A seal authenticates, confirms, certifies, or guarantees the genuineness of what was inside. Circumcision served as, as a seal that confirmed Abraham that he was guarded by God as righteousness through faith. Circumcision didn't bring the righteousness. It was imputed to him by his faith. Once righteousness had been imputed on an individual... He or, she is, he or she is sealed into the, to it forever. And this is good news for us today. John Piper says it this way. When your life begins to conform to the will of God, this is a sign and a seal that your faith is real and unshakable in righteousness. Namely, the righteousness of God in Christ. An act like circumcision or any other act in obedience to God does not give you your right standing with God. These acts don't, don't save you. Um, I was listening in my study this week to a, uh, a sermon series and the pastor was talking about being in Canada and being at a Roman Catholic church there and big cathedral and one of their one of their rituals, one of the things they believe, because in the Roman Catholic faith, they believe in faith plus works. And, and in fact, most, if you ask, they'll tell you they don't know if they're good enough to get into heaven because of this. You don't know. But one of the things they do there, and he said he witnessed this firsthand, they had to climb on their knees all the way up this cathedral to the top to be justified there, there was a, a dead priest's bones that rest in the top up there. 
and you had to climb all the steps on your knees all the way to the top. And you had to go up there and do this on your knees and then touch the bones. And this would justify you into the faith of God. The fact is that that, that act, baptism, confirmation at the age of 12 or 13, none, none of the taking your first communion, none of these things save you. None of them save you. Faith alone. Faith alone. It is your personal and unique relationship with Jesus Christ. And all baptism and communion, we, we do all those things. But we don't believe those as faith. We don't believe that those are the things that save you. Because they're not. Your faith with Jesus is. We do those things to tell the world that I'm a child of God. Baptism, like communion, are a sign and seal that your faith is real and that Christ is your perfect righteousness. They are a sign, not an, not an act, action. The Jews should have known the true meaning of circumcision. For Moses and the prophets uh, very often use this term, circumcised as a symbol for purity of heart and readiness to hear and obey. In Deuteronomy 15, verse 6, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Clearly, Moses wasn't talking about going there and cut away from your heart. I mean, you can hear him saying, right, how am I supposed to cut my heart and, and live? This is this, is this internal cutting away of, of our sinful flesh and, and get to the true relationship with Christ in your heart the body of flesh which is a predisposition to sin inherited from Adam which kept man from being spiritually devoted to God we move on to verse 13 in Romans 4 for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that it would be the heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith did not come through the law. Here we see Paul's emphasis on the fact that the promise comes through obeying the law, not through obeying the law, but through faith alone. The circumcision as given to Abraham and his descendants in Genesis 17 served as a visible marker of their covenant relationship with God. However, the true essence of righteousness lies in the faith that precedes and underlies any external symbol or ritual. Not through any ritual, not through the law, but through faith. This debate of what it means to be saved and what must be done in order to be saved has been around for centuries. So let's read in Acts 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching their brothers... Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to a group to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. The Judaizers insisted that a believer from a non-Jewish background, Gentile, must first become a Jew ceremonially. There I go again. 
ceremonially by being circumcised before he could be admitted into the Christian brotherhood. A council of apostles and elders convened in Jerusalem to resolve the issue. Among those attending were Paul and Barnabas, Simon, Simon Peter, James, and the leaders of the Jerusalem church. He continues in verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by the mouth of the Gentiles you, you should you hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God knows the heart, bore witness to them, and given them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them. He's saying, we're no Jew, we Jews are no different than these Gentiles. He made no distinction. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. The grace of the Lord Jesus. That's how we're saved. To insist on this circumcision for the Gentiles, Peter argued, would amount to this burdensome yoke. Something they couldn't carry. This was, this was a decision handed down by the council. And the church broke away from the binding legalism of, the, of Judaism, which demanded the physical circumcision. So, as we draw all this to conclusion, what does it mean for us today? Maybe you're thinking this whole circumcision deal has nothing to do with the modern church or believers of today. Maybe you're a female and have never considered such an act. Maybe it's hard to understand how this physical circumcision could apply to our faith today, but the illustration here has much to teach us. Why does it matter what comes first? Circumcision or justification? John Piper notes that Paul is clearly stating that you do not have to be a physical Jew or even a kosher proselyte, there's another big word, to be a part of a covenant that God made with Abraham. What makes you a child of God? What makes you a child of Abraham and a fellow heir of the promise is not circumcision or any other Jewish custom. It's not climbing on your knees to the top of a cathedral. It is faith in the one God who justifies the ungodly. That's what united Abraham to God. And that's what will unite us to God. Paul has already pointedly explained that to the majority of the Jews while physically circumcised remain tragically uncircumcised. Did you hear that? Physically circumcised remain tragically uncircumcised. Just because we come to church every time the doors open doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't, doesn't make you with God. That's what that means. You can, just because we baptize you in this pool, if you haven't given your faith to God, does not mean you're saved. 
That's what he's saying. Paul's response not only addresses those concerned with it, with circumcision, by the way of application speaks to the millions to cling to some other kind of ceremony or other activity for the basis of their righteousness. It's such an easy pattern to fall into, relying on our works to justify us. Attending church, having been baptized, serving, even tithing. Even tithing. You can give money every week, and it doesn't make you saved by faith. We had a guy make a donation here one time and look me square in the face. Oh, why, sure, I'll donate. I'll buy my spot right into heaven. And it literally broke me when he said that to me. Those of you that know me know I joke around all the time about heaven points for people coming to church or to small group. All these work-based work faith acts, I joke around about that. Plus 10, minus 5, plus 20, minus 25. I've been wrecked this week processing how easy it is for us to fall into that world's economy of God's favor and trying to earn God's favor that way. Because I say that all in jest. I play around with that all the time. But it's so easy to get into this idea of us being able to climb the ladder. Nobody, nobody works harder than me at some of these things. And I'm the, I'm the worst of it. Remember that all other, all, all other world religions practice a religion of do. You have to do something to be saved. You have to do. God's not interested in our doing. He's interested in our being. And the fact is that when we just are, have our faith and, and live in our faith, then the doing will come out of obedience of that. From, from your faith will come obedience and you'll want to serve and you'll want to be here and you'll want to disciple and you'll want to tithe. All of those things come out of that. Christ frees us up from that, that burden, that need to be here. Oh, I got to go serve at church. And, and when you're in the faith, a joy will come over your heart. Hey, Amen. Sorry, I can't go fishing today. I got something I want to do at church. I'm going to be honest with you, church. The idea of faith apart from works is something I've struggled with my entire life. Many of you know I grew up without a father and a mother in a children's home in Mississippi. And though God has protected me and plucked me out of so many, rescued me out of so many bad situations, I have spent the majority of my life trying to be the good kid, trying to be the good guy. In fact, I don't know that there's probably a person in this building that if asked by somebody else outside of this building about Adam, if you would say anything, but man, what an awesome guy. That doesn't save me. 
That doesn't make me any better of God. Faith in God is the only way you get to heaven through Jesus Christ. It's taken me a lot of years to untangle that. That web of lies in my heart, in my actions that, that just reach for love and favor by people. My, every day, I have to test my motives now on what I'm doing and what I'm giving and where I'm spending my time. I have to stop and, and say, am I doing this for you, God, or am I doing this to be Adam the good guy? So I want to challenge us this morning with a couple of questions to consider as we leave. How are you measuring your faith? Are you surrendered to a God who counts us as righteousness through your faith? And faith alone in the completed work of the cross? Or are you keeping a scorecard like Adam does? Faith alone. Or are you keeping up with a scorecard to see how good of a guy you are or a girl? And secondly, who are you comparing yourself against as a means to justify your faith? Are you like the Jewish people who believe their outward circumcision set them apart from everybody else to help cover up a lack of genuine faith in God that saved you? Is our judgmental attitude toward those who are not like us keeping us from sharing our faith? Do we leave here feeling high and mighty better than somebody else down the street? I have. Certainly have. Passed right over people that probably needed my help. As we close this morning, I'm going to call the band back up to help us worship as we leave. But this altar is open up here. And I urge you to wrestle with the Lord and ask him to reveal areas of your life where you're not resting in the transformative power of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ the one who saves you through your faith and your faith alone apart from anything work wise you could ever do ask him to reveal that to you the ways you're counting yourself better than the next guy more righteous than our brother and sister Ask him to restore you to the knowledge of the all-sufficient God who spurs us to the good works through the fruit of our faith out of a place of genuine faith but not as a means to earn it. Father God, you continue to